Well, Pastor Mike, I appreciate those words, brother, but man, that only lasted about 20 minutes till Miss Jane got up here, and then Pastor Appreciation, that was it, right? Now, God bless you. I love you guys. Uh, now, you're, if you have those proposed 2022 budgets in your hands, that's good. If you don't, pick it up on the way out, but if you've got one, set it aside for now. And now's not the time to peruse that. Uh, I'd ask you to take your watch off, but I won't go that far. We'll uh, and also, remember a couple of things. We talked about Operation Christmas Child, the Samaritan Purse shoe boxes. Pick those up on the way out. Remember to have them back by or before November 14th. That's our dedication day. We're going to pray over the shoe boxes and dedicate them to the Lord, and then we'll send them off that day, November 14th. So you have plenty of time uh, to prepare, pack, and even more than one shoe box coming up. Also, I want to remind you that throughout the building, there are uh, things you can pick up and for information or to give away the uh, mailer for our fall festival this Wednesday night. How many of you received it in the mail this week? Good for you. God bless you. Be here for that. Uh, if you didn't receive one, they're throughout the building. Pick them up. Give them to your neighbors and friends. That's why they're laying out. So you will take them and give them away. Invite people. And if you got one in the mail, you already know about it. You're already coming. So give it to your neighbor. Give it to your friend who may need just, and that's a, what a great way just to make a contact, uh, just to love on somebody a little bit and say, I want to invite you to this event at our church Wednesday night. Make sure that they get that, especially if they live outside your area, somebody that you might know. And I cannot underscore enough uh, the budget discussion tonight and the vote coming up next week. Uh, be here for the discussion in-house or online, but when we vote on the budget in business conference next Sunday morning following the service, that's in-house only. Uh, you can't register to participate online for that, so be here in-house next Sunday morning for worship at 11, and following that, we will be called into a brief conference. And the purpose of the discussion tonight is to get those questions answered that you might have, so uh, I encourage you for that. Uh, also throughout the building, these the best news cards, take them, give them away. It has the gospel on the back, our information, our website on the front. Love you. Give those out when you go to a restaurant and give a tip. Don't leave it in place of the tip. Put that there with your tip. Also, uh, we already have out uh, the information for the Weekend of Encouragement Marriage Retreat that we partner with other churches in. It's at Myrtle Beach. Um, I, I should know when this is because as you, if you pick one of these up, you may have already noticed that the guy speaking is familiar to you. It's me. And apparently they couldn't find anyone else, so I got a call. But uh, February 4th and 5th next year. So pick those up. Plenty of those around as well. Register for that online. Uh, October 13, William Shatner, the actor, who had, who's best known for his role as a traveler in the universe on Star Trek. He played James T. Kirk in the 1960s for three seasons, and that show launched the franchise, which still continues today. 90-year-old William Shatner actually took his first trip in space on Jeff Bezos' uh, Blue Origin rocket. Left from Texas and came down in the Texas desert. Uh, it took 11 minutes to fly 66 miles into space and drop back down as a space tourist. And it turns out the real deal is a whole lot more exciting than pretending to be a space traveler on television. As soon as he walked out of the rocket, Shatner went straight up to Jeff Bezos and said, what you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. 
He was fighting back tears as he continued. He said, I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I just, I just, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. And he said, I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can maintain what I feel now. I don't want to lose it. Lose what? Lose what? Lose that sense of awe, of majesty. Lose that sense of knowing that things are much bigger than you. It's not all about you. The world doesn't revolve about, around you. And the Bible teaches to get that sense of awe, with that perspective on who we really are, we need God's perspective. We've got to see ourselves from his point of view. That's what the Bible does constantly for us. The Bible constantly reminds us who we are from God's point of view, our real place in this universe, what really matters most. Because the Bible lets us see ourselves from God's point of view. This morning we wrap up our series in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, go there with me. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Hold your place there for just a minute. Uh, if you've been on this journey with us as we've been on the journey with Jonah, you know what Jonah is most famous for. He's most famous for rebelling against God, being swallowed by a fish, and three days later being spit out by the same fish. God called Jonah a Jewish prophet, an Israelite prophet of the time who lived in the northern kingdom of Samaria. God called him to go north and preach to the Ninevites, uh, the people who live in a city called Nineveh in a nation of the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were the worst of the worst, in the ancient Near East, they were ruthless, uh, just, you can imagine the worst kind of people, that, that, that's who they were. The Israelites hated them, and they hated the Israelites, but they pretty much hated everybody anyway, and they believed their job was to conquer the world in their lifetime. So when God called his prophet Jonah, whom up to that time, as far as we know, had been a faithful prophet preaching to his own people, God told him to go to the Assyrians in Nineveh and preach to them so that they might repent. As you know from the first chapter, Jonah said no. He wasn't going to do that. He got up and he left. Got as, tried to get as far away as he could from the assignment. He knew he couldn't get away from, out of God's presence completely, but he wanted to get away from the assignment. Uh, his goal was the coast of Spain, a place called Tarshish, about 2,000 miles from where he originated. Uh, God brought a storm on the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. The sailors, the Phoenician sailors, found out that Jonah was the problem. They cast him overboard. And the Bible says that God appointed a fish. And that's an important term, as you'll see in just a moment. God appointed a fish to come and swallow Jonah. Jonah went into the belly of the fish, was there three days and three nights. At the end of chapter 2, Jonah prays to God. Throughout chapter 2, prays to God. And at the end of chapter 2, God directs the fish to spit him out on dry land. So Jonah's been through this process of disobedience. Then God brings his rebellious, rebellious servant back to obedience. Jonah repents, puts his faith back in God. And then at the start of chapter 3, God calls him again. Same call, same invitation. But this time the Bible says instead of getting up and running, Jonah got up and went to Nineveh and he preached. And he preached a very simple sermon. He preached that in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. 
In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. And chapter 3 chronicles the response of all of the people of the city of Nineveh. 120,000 people at least understood the message, repented, and turned to Jonah's God, the one true God. They humbled themselves. They cried out to God. And chapter 3 ends with the message that God relented. That is, God responded to their response to God because God always responds to your response to Him. And God responded to their response by not bringing that disaster, by not demolishing the city or overturning them is what the term literally means in those 40 days. Now, you would think at this point, Jonah would be elated. Jonah has just been God's prophet to participate in one of the, one of the truly great works of God In his generation, he has seen God do something mighty and extraordinary and do it through him. You would think he would be in awe. You would think that his perspective would have changed. You think that he would no longer think this is all about him and what he wants to do, that he is serving a great and mighty God, the creator of all people, you would think. But Jonah's response, to be honest, is just embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. When we look into it, and it's embarrassing for Jonah, but it's even more embarrassing when we realize just how much like Jonah we really are. Look there with me. The book of Jonah, chapter 4. And the Bible says, after God relented and the Ninevites humbled themselves, the Bible says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said? Well, I was still in my own country. That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Now, notice that. He's still going to stay around and see if fire and brimstone rain down on Nineveh. He's going to stay long enough for that. Verse 6. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm, and that attacked the plant. And it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. And just like that, the book of Jonah ends. Just like that. God not only figuratively gets the last word, he literally has the last word. Is it right for you to be angry. God doesn't ask Jonah, why are you angry? He says, is it right for you to be angry? He doesn't ask him, do you have a right to be angry? 
He asks him, is it right for you to be angry? The term right, the term translated right as we read it this morning, doesn't refer to moral or ethical rightness. It literally means, is there a good reason that you, the emphasis on Jonah, that you should be angry about this? Is there any good reason that you can think of, Jonah, that you should be angry by the way I treated the Ninevites and how they responded to me? Any good reason at all? It's a question for all of us. Why do we respond to God the way that we do? Is it right for us to question what God does? Is there any good reason? Do we have any reason in our lives to think we can ask God, hey God, what are you doing? Or we can dictate to God what he should be doing. Is there any reason, in other words, to think that we are in control of what's happening in our lives and the lives of others around us? That we get to dictate to God how things come about and what he does. We certainly pray And God answers prayer, and God tells us to pray, and God knows our request, and God loves us, and he works through us. But the point here is, bluntly, who's really in charge? And who really knows best in the outcome of things? I want to go back to the book of Jonah this morning as we close it out. I think God leaves us with three things we all need to remember. Three things we need to remember. These are big picture, universal truths. But we need to remember these things as we pray for what we want God to do and especially as we interact with other people, as we consider whether or not God would use us in the world around us, we need to always remember these three things. First of all, remember that you are right about Him. That is, you're right about God. We sang about Him a little while ago. We're right that His love is enduring. We're right that He is compassionate. We are correct that He is gracious. We are right in all these things. And what has to be one of the strangest gripe sessions in all of the Bible, Jonah gripes to God that God is good. That's his problem with God. And this is where he explains why he fled in the first place. He said, please, Lord, isn't this why I said, uh, what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, you're the one who relents from sending disaster. In other words, God, I wanted the Ninevites to suffer. And I knew you wouldn't do it if they turned to you. I was right about you. But Jonah, that's good news. That's not bad news. It means you didn't get your way, but, but pay attention to this. You are right about God, and that's a good thing because God applied that same compassion and loving kindness and grace and mercy to you when you didn't deserve it. God applied it to you when he saved you from your sins, and God applied it to you, Jonah, when he called you to be a prophet. And Jonah, most of all, God applied that same grace and mercy and relentless love to you when you ran away and God brought you back. God loved you enough to pursue you, so why is it wrong that he loves the Ninevites enough to save them if they'll turn back to him? It's not wrong. What good reason do you have to be angry with God who is so consistent in his character and his mercy? And remember, the love that he shows those people you don't like is the love that he showed you. And remember, you didn't deserve it either. You didn't deserve that. But that's how merciful and gracious 
and compassionate God is. You're right about him, and don't forget it. Don't forget it. When you gripe to God, because you don't want to talk to so-and-so, you don't like them. You don't want to sit with so-and-so, you don't like them, you don't know them. You want to visit so-and-so, you don't like them, you don't know them. And heaven forbid that God should send missionaries across the world. What good reason do you have to be angry with God for applying his love and mercy to other people the same way he did to you? Our simple three, our values, our purpose at this church. Love God, love one another, and three people. Love the world. Love the world. Our third. Now and then, somebody really savvy and, and, and will call me or mention in, in our membership class and that doesn't the Bible say. In fact, I had a phone call this past week from a gentleman who received our fall festival flyer in the mail, and he picked up on this, our three values. Love God, love one another, love the world. So he gave me a call. And he said, doesn't the Bible say, do not love the things of the world? Or do not love the world and the things of the world? And I said, yes, it does. Second John 2.15, the Bible says, do not love the world or the things of the world. But in that verse, the Apostle John is speaking of the mindset, the values of the world. Uh, as we often say, the worldview of the world. We're not to love that. Don't, don't love the values of the world. But we base that value on John 3.16, which you've already heard this morning. For God so loved the world. And that includes you. Isn't that good news? That includes you. And when he saved you from your sins, that verse did not expire. The world didn't end with you. And it didn't end with me. God so loved the world, he gave. His one and only Son, that whoever, whoever, while there's still time, while there's still opportunity, whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Can we get that God loves people we would rather not God love? Have you thought about that? He may not agree with their values. In fact, they may be outright evil. But God loves them for no other reason than he created them. And if they turn to Christ, he will forgive them and save them. I thought about this this morning as I prayed for the 17 missionaries in Haiti who'd been abducted by a gang. Each held ransom for a million dollars. $17 million is the asking price for their lives. God hates that sin. God despises that evil. God never condones that abduction. But believe it or not, God loves his created people, including those that need Christ. What good reason do we have to question God when he says, I love the whole world? I love you, but never forget the same mercy and grace I applied to you, I will apply to anyone who turns to me. So remember that you're right about God. You're right about God. And remember that when you're hurting and you're struggling and you're burdened and you're broken, remember when you're at your wit's end and prayers don't seem to be answered, remember that you're right about God's character. He has not changed. Not only will we say, for what good reason, what right, 
do you have to be angry? We could say, what right do you have to doubt God? What right do you have to be afraid? What right do you have to worry? For what good reason are you worrying about your life when your God never changes, when he promised to take care of you, when he is always consistent and he is always there for you? That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. The second thing to always remember, the second thing to always remember is that you might be wrong about you. You're right about him, but often, often, you're wrong about you. I'm wrong about me. And here's what I mean. We see the world from our little perspective. And from our little perspective, the world rotates around who? Me. We're wrong about that. I'm wrong when I think I'm the center of the universe. I'm wrong when I think that everything's about me. I'm wrong that I think God is going to let me dictate how he behaves. Sometimes I'm wrong about me. I'm wrong about my self-importance, and I'm wrong when I'm self-centered and think that it's all about me. That's when I'm wrong. So God will work to get our attention. God does ask this question of Jonah, and he asks it twice in the story. Uh, what right do you have to be angry? Are you right to be angry? Are you right to be angry about the plant? This is the second time he asks it. You know, God loves to ask questions as teaching tools. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus does it frequently. Uh, whose image is on the coin? What do you want me to do for you? Do you trust me? Jesus asks it constantly. Oh, ye of little faith, where is your faith? God loves to teach by asking questions. So he asks this question of Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah's answer is basically yes, but Jonah's perspective at the moment is all about him, and here's why. See, a prophet of God in, the, in this era, the 700s B.C., was, their credibility was judged on whether or not their prophecy came about the way that they preached it. And you'll notice Jonah's sermon was not, in 40 days you will be overturned, you will be demolished, unless you repent. It was just, in 40 days, you will be overturned. You will be demolished. And it didn't happen. To Jonah, his reputation is at stake. And not only is his reputation as a prophet at stake, the very people his homeland hates have survived because of him. Never mind that he just experienced one of the great moves of God in history at the time. Never mind that he got to be part of one of the great things God had done. God used him. Never mind that he should be humbled by this. He's angry by this because it's all about him. So God says, well, well let me illustrate why it's not about you. Jonah has moved out of the city toward the east so he can sit around and, and watch just kind of see if, if God maybe decides to change his mind again and, and the people perish because that would be great news before he went all the way home to Samaria. So he's out, he's out in the city in the desert heat and this Middle Eastern heat's going to rise. It's dry, dusty heat about 110, 112 degrees. Found whatever little shade he could but suddenly a plant grows. And provides him shelter. And the Bible as we read it says. He was greatly pleased. Did you catch that? The phrase in Hebrew translated greatly pleased. Is not used anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. 
it means something like he was deliriously happy. He was so overjoyed he couldn't express it in words that this plant had come up and given him shade. That's what he was excited about. So the story continues. And we're told that God appointed the plant. He appointed a worm that destroyed the plant. And after the worm, he appointed, did you catch that? A hot Chiraco, a, a sandstorm basically that blows through the desert to make things even worse for Jonah. His self-pitying prophet stuck out in the middle of the nowhere, wishing now that he would just die. I can't go home. My reputation shot. I may as well die. Now remember throughout the scripture, throughout the story of Jonah, God is our creator. To bring this point home even more, the same term that was used of him pointing the fish, orchestrating the fish, uh, and, and overseeing the storm is used three more times here. And it's used in reference to God as creator. We are told the Lord God appointed a plant, a worm, and a hot storm come through the desert. The phrase the Lord God is the same one used in the Old Testament to designate God as creator. As creator. He is in charge of his creation. The plant rises and Jonah is so excited, so overwhelmed by this. And then suddenly the plant dies and the plant is gone. Are you right to be angry? Is there any good reason, Jonah, for you to be angry because the plant came and the plant went away? Yes, he says. I'm so angry I may as well die. Actually, he doesn't say yes and here's why because he didn't have a reason. <laughs> he just says yes. I may as well die. Now, Jonah, who's just experienced one of the great works of God, found absolutely no joy in human beings turning to God. He found no excitement whatsoever that a, a city of, of the Assyrians had suddenly 120,000 people because he preached had humbled themselves, had fasted, had cried out to God from the least to the greatest. The very king himself had bowed before God. Jonah finds no joy in that whatsoever. What he finds joy in is what benefits him. Sound vaguely familiar? God, give me what I want. What I'd like for you to do is go share the gospel with your lost neighbor. No, God, I need this. I need that. What I'd like for you to do is do what I want you to do and go share the gospel with your lost neighbor who will die and perish without Christ. But God, why won't you give me what I want? Because I base my relationship with you on how you bless me, on what benefits me, because it's all about me. Welcome to Christianity in the 21st century. And God says, what good reason do you have to be angry because your prayers are not answered exactly the way you want them to be answered? What good reason do you have because material things come to you and then they go away? What good reason do you have to be angry with me? I'll tell you what you should be angry, what you should be upset about. What, you should, what should hurt you are the same things that hurt the heart of God. The sinful nature of humanity. The brokenness of human beings. The many times that you have disobeyed your God and turned your back on Him. That's what you should be concerned about. 
All the times you told him he didn't care about you when he's loved you all along. All the times that he did, you say, God, why don't you take care of me when he's taken care of you all the time? He just didn't do it the way you thought he would. All the times you turned your back on him six days a week so you could show up one day a week and say, see how good I am? When we let it be all about us, we're wrong about us. Bluntly, we're not that important. And if you already know Christ as your Savior, His plan is to use you as long as He plans to use you here and now to promote and propagate the kingdom of God, to populate His heaven. And when the time comes for you to go home, you're going home. When you come to Christ, from that day forward, you work for Him. I work for Him. And He takes care of our needs as we go along. But He also reminds us it's not all about us. It's not all about us getting our blessings. It's about us blessing the world. Jesus said, be careful. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures now where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Do what God does. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, eternal life. Feed into the lives of people. Reach out to lost people. Share the gospel. Build and treasures in heaven. Populate heaven. God is concerned with eternity, first and foremost. Now hear me to say, I'm not saying God doesn't care about you. Of course he does. Jesus said he counts every hair on your head. He'll take care of you in all things. But don't judge his grace and his mercy by what he gives you. Remember, you were right about him to begin with. His grace, his mercy, his compassion, that's consistent. No matter what, God loves you. God takes care of you. And if you're born again in Christ, God has a home for you in heaven. In the meantime, God has called us to do what he wants us to do, to reach a lost world for Christ and we don't get to say, well, God, I don't like them very much. I don't want to do that. God's answer is, I created them. I created them. What right do you have? What good reason do you have not to do what I want you to do? You write about him. And sometimes, if you think you're the center of the universe, if you think it's all about you, if I think it's all about me, hey, we're wrong about that. It's about Jesus. And it's about the gospel. But listen, remember this, third truth. You are loved no matter what. Even when you and I get it massively wrong, even when we make a mess of it, God still loves us. He still loves you. Even when everything goes south in your life, and even when you are at times angry with God, He loves you. He takes care of you. As with Jonah, He might teach you a lesson now and then about whether or not you should be angry with him. But God always loves you. You are loved no matter what by the God who created you. And if you're a believer in Christ, the God who saved you from your sins, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, God loves you. God loves you. And he loves you no matter what. But remember, he loves everyone. He loves everyone. Verse 11. Here it is, Jonah. 
if you cared so much about the plant, if that's what you got all emotional about when it rose up, when it went away, may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. And that's the last phrase in the book of Jonah, as well as many animals. That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Well, maybe a little bit, except what it underscores, what it pinpoints is, Jonah, I'm the creator. I even care about the cows in Nineveh. The people come first. And notice how he describes lost people. Did you notice how God describes lost people? They can't tell the right from the left. They're confused. As the Bible says, they are sheep without a shepherd. They're in desperate need of their God, and they're looking for him, Jonah. You're the one that can tell him where he is. I love them too. I loved you. I didn't turn you away. When you came to Christ, you found a Savior. You found the one who loves you, Jonah. And the same is true of you and me. When we came to Christ, we were not turned away. We found the God who loves us. God loves lost people enough to save them when they turn to Christ. And God loves you and me enough to forgive us when we come back to him. God loves us no matter what you do. No matter how good you are, no matter how much you make a mess of things, God loves you. He loves you so much, he'll pursue you. His love is relentless. He'll chase after you. He may be doing that even now. I say, Pastor Bob, how do I know that? Well, you know that because you're a little bit miserable because <laughs> you're not saying yes to God. You've turned your back on him. You've been disobedient or maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and it haunts you. It's, a, it's, a, it's an odd kind of thing. Well, that's how much God loves you. He just won't let you go. About 50 years after the story of Jonah ended, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, went back to their old ways. And they swept down into the homeland of Jonah, Samaria. They conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria. They slaughtered many of the Israelites. They took many of them more, more into captivity. And they planted foreign people into that land. And you and I would say, well, Jonah was right. But are we right? Because those people became the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are the ones Jesus went to visit and met a woman at the well. And a revival started in Samaria that spread throughout and people got saved. Believe it or not, God seems to know what he's doing, doesn't he? Because God always has the bigger picture in mind. He's just asking you and me to say yes right now. And then we get to participate with him in what he's doing. I think when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, he had Jonah in the back of his mind. When we read the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, and we're very familiar with it. We'll summarize it a little bit, but very familiar with it. It's about two brothers. We call it the prodigal son, but it's actually a story of two brothers on two distinct ends of understanding God. And I think when Jesus thought about Jonah, or he had Jonah in the back of his mind when he told this story, because we are all at one time or another both of those brothers. <laughs> Remember the story of the prodigal son. 
Two sons, both Jews. One comes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance. The dad reluctantly gives it, and off he goes to squander his inheritance. Just like that, it's over. He hits rock bottom. He finds himself feeding pigs and eating the husk of the pigs, and then all of a sudden it dawns on him, you know what, my dad's servants are better off than I am right now. I'd rather go home. And then he, he rehearses this speech of what he's going to say when he, when he comes home, he sees his father. Now, in the meantime, his brother has stayed home, and his brother has been faithful, and his brother has worked the fields, and his brother has followed the law, and his brother has done all things good for their dad. Brother number one finally comes home. He's rehearsing this speech as he approaches his, his dad's estate. And lo and behold, there out in the distance, he sees his father on the road waiting for him. And then his father sprints and runs to him and embraces him in a hug. The one who is lost has been found. My son has come home. And he, he has, has a party for his son who's come home. They're cheering and they're celebrating. And they slaughter the fattened calf. And it's all this wonderful things. In the meantime... Other brothers in the field, working hard, following the law, doing right things. And he comes in from the field and he hears the party going on and he, he asks somebody, what's up? Oh, your brother's come home and your dad slaughtered the fattened calf and he's throwing the party, the celebration. He's put a ring on his finger, a, a robe on his back and we're celebrating. The one who's lost has been found. The son has come home. And the second brother says, that's awesome. I'm so excited that he's home. How wonderful this is. No, he doesn't. He says, I'm angry. I'm furious. And he voices his displeasure. I have been faithful to you all this time. Dad, how dare you favor him over me? Son, you don't get it, do you? I love you just like I love him. But you've been here. You're doing the right thing. But he's been gone. He did the wrong thing. The same grace and compassion that loves you here loves him when he comes home. Jonah, the disobedient prophet. The story could have ended there. God embraced him with grace and compassion. When in the stomach of a fish, he cried out to God and realized how wrong he had been. God, I should have obeyed you. And God returned him to obedience and said, let's start over. How many of you would like a second chance? How many of you would like to be met on the road by a loving father who said, good, come home. I'm so glad you're here. But then Jonah didn't get his way. He forgot that the same grace that welcomed him home is the grace offered to the Assyrians. And he said, I'm so angry. I'm so angry. What right do you have? What, what are you angry about? What good reason do you have to be angry when I share my grace with all who respond to me just like I did to you? Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be afraid? Is it right for you to blame God? Is it right for you to worry about things you cannot control? Is it right for you to be negligent and praying for lost people? Is it right for you to say things on social media to hurt other people? Is it right that you should be this way when your God loves you, forgives you, and loves and forgives any 
who will respond to him? Short answer, no. No, it's not. God, forgive us for being petty. God, forgive us for being small. God, forgive us for forgetting the grace that saved us. It's the same grace you would give any who turned to Christ. God, forgive us for being negligent and praying for those who need Christ, sharing the gospel with those who need Christ. Forgive us, God, for being negligent and serving you who have saved us. Forgive me, God, for basing my thinking of your love for me on what you give me rather than who you are. God, forgive me for that. Some of you need to come home today. You've been away. You've been away. And you realize how much your father loves you. He's waiting on the road to receive you. He's crying out to you, calling out to you. Maybe it's been a testing time. Maybe he said, I need to get your attention with what's going on. But you know now, it's time to come home. You have no good reason to be angry at God, to worry, to be afraid. No good reason to stay away. But come home to the God who loves you. And maybe you have never trusted Christ as your Savior. And you realize today, he just loves you. He just loves you. And you, like everybody else in this room, everyone else at home, can respond to Jesus Christ. And he is waiting for you to do just that. Will you come back, repent of your sins, and give your life to Christ? Heavenly Father, God, in this room or at home, God, there are those of us who know we've been away. We've been rebellious. We've been angry. We've disagreed with the way you do things because we think it's all about us. God, please forgive us for that. There are those in this room, Father, who need to repent of their sins, who need to say, Father, forgive me for my disobedience, God. Forgive me for not praying for the lost. Forgive me, God, for not going and sharing the gospel with those who need Jesus. Forgive me, God, for thinking that anyone is out of your reach. Forgive me, God, for that. Forgive me, God, for dividing the world up into people I like and people I don't like. Forgive me, God, for that. God, give me your perspective. Give me your insight. Give me your eyesight on the world, God. Give me your heart for lost people. And Father, I pray that you would take care of whatever needs I have, God. You would liberate me from the worry that haunts me and concerns me so that I can serve you. God, forgive me for thinking that it's right for me to be angry or worry or afraid. But instead, God, it's, it's right that I serve you. God, help me do that again. I pray for those, God, believers in Christ who know they've been away from you, who know they've had a stunted view of their own lives and of who you are, that today they would come home to you. And God, there are those in this room and at home that need to trust Christ. They are like the Ninevites. They, they need to turn to you, their Savior. And Father, I pray with them and for them today that they would put all their faith and trust in Christ and in faith pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I am. I know I've been living by my own rules, my way. But Jesus, I know you died on the cross for me and I believe in you, Jesus Christ, my Savior. And I believe that you're alive today, that you've risen from the grave. So Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I ask you would come into my heart, into my life. Cleanse me, forgive me. Give me hope that I can serve you. Jesus, we have much on our hearts, much we're burdened by. For those who have prayed with me this morning, for others, God, in this room and at home, I pray for us, God, today. 
I pray we'd be awash in your presence and your love. We would be reminded again and again, overwhelmed, God, by that unending, enduring love, that relentless love that you have for us. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.